This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C and welcome to The Breakfast Grill. Joining me in the studio today is Joseph DeCruz, CEO of Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or more well known as RSPO, as we assess how the implementation of a global standard for palm oil will help transform the industry into a more sustainable one. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks very much, Philip. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've been told for years that I have a face for radio, so it's <laughs> good to know that I'm actually using it now. Finally, finally, putting it to good use. But I think your utility is more useful as leading this roundtable. And and honestly, this is one of the biggest challenges that we face in Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. This whole bad rap with palm oil, especially in Europe. I mean, do you feel that even with all these stringent certifications and standards, it's going to be difficult to change hearts and minds there? Yes, I think the the question of hearts and minds is one that we consider quite often. Now, the reality is the palm sector overall is peculiar. You have a portion of the industry that is unremittingly focused on producing sustainably, demonstrating through whatever means they have that they are actually producing the most efficient and in many ways the most sustainable vegetable oil in the world. But you still have a long tail of others in the industry that have a long way to go. Mm. And that gap between the best in class and the rest of the industry is precisely the space where a lot of consumers get confused as to whether this is a crop they should focus on or not, they should support or not. The RSPO part of this fraternity is genuinely some of the most sustainable and efficient vegetable oil production in the world and one that we should definitely support. And you see consumers in Europe actually aligning behind this quite strongly as well. So help us crystallize, right? What does it mean when your palm oil is RSPO certified versus palm oil that isn't? What are the distinctions? So the RSPO, which is a a voluntary multi-sector global organization, sets a set of standards for how palm oil should be produced, either by large growers or by smallholders, and how that palm oil and these products should be traded across the entire supply chain. And aligning with those standards ensures that a final product you buy, which has RSPO certified palm oil in it, has palm which is produced in a way that doesn't deforest, doesn't encourage environmental destruction, minimizes carbon emissions, and very importantly, also minimizes social impact on workers, on local communities, etc. So the standards the RSPO sets out don't just look at minimizing environmental impacts, but also looks at all the other dimensions of sustainability. And the certification we provide ensures that the producers are independently audited by third-party professional auditors to confirm that they're actually following these standards. Mm. I mean, you articulate it so nicely, but I think underlying these standards really is a lot of work, right? Yes. To just make this work. Even tracing that supply chain is sounds rigorous, requires a huge amount of effort there. And hence, I think the the concern really is whether or not uh, many people can live up to those standards, Mm. whether we can actually implement and actually follow through with the execution of these standards. So the RSPO now um, certifies roughly 20% of global trade. And 20% is a really interesting number, Philip, because if we were at 2%, you could say, well, that's an outlier case. By the time you hit 20%, you're actually covering a large enough part of the global supply chain that you're well beyond the proof of concept. And within that 20%, we don't just have the largest, most advanced palm oil companies in the world. We have thousands and thousands of smallholders 
farmers who own five, 10 hectares of, of land who have banded together and actually have demonstrated they can follow equivalent standards. So essentially, I would say we've demonstrated that any part of the palm supply chain that wants to be certified sustainable can do so. It's just a question of whether people are willing to make that effort and that commitment and to commit to the kind of transparency and accountability that aspiring to a standard requires. This willingness is quite key, I think, because, mm. you know, you say 20 percent, it, it feels substantive, but still not large enough, right? Yeah. Not large enough to have create a heft. But this point of willingness, I just want to emphasize on this. Uh, you know, what you see actually is that not everybody is willing to follow those standards and what has created you know, has birth, its result is national standards. I mean, yeah. Indonesia has its own standards. Malaysia has its own standards. Perhaps in response to the fact that the standards you impose or RSPO imposes are just too laborious for many of the actors within the industry. Do you mm -hmm. agree with that? Um, there is certainly a perception out there that our standards are onerous. Um, mm. And I would say to some extent I agree because we do ensure that our system is extremely rigorous. Ours is a voluntary certification. If we aren't able to demonstrate rigor in how we assess and certify compliance, we won't have credibility. Having said that, I think the development of national standards in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia is actually um, not only a welcome development, but a critical development. And I'll explain why. As I said, the RSPO is a voluntary body, and it is effectively composed of the subset of the industry, both from the demand side and the supply side, that has the ability and the willingness and the resources to continuously test themselves against the highest standards in the world. And within the RSPO, those standards are constantly evolving. We're constantly asking ourselves, what are the sustainability issues in the world today that we need to address and how do we fold those into mm. our standards? So our standards go up continuously yeah. over time. National standards are critical because what they do is they actually set the baseline for what an entire industry in a country needs to comply with. And effectively, as those national standards improve, you are lifting everybody in the industry at the same time. Malaysia is a great example of that because the MSPO national standard is mandatory here. So all producers in Malaysia need to ascribe to those standards. Now, the balance between these two, in my view, is that the RSPO, by virtue of being a voluntary partnership, has that ability to test and innovate and push the boundaries. Mm. And with our 20%, then demonstrate what is actually possible. So you basically say it's best in class, it's world-class standards, right? Yes. And if I hear you, it is a complementary tool, having local standards as opposed to a competitive element. Absolutely. And the key element here is at least local standards are a stepping stone, a stepping stone where perhaps in the future they become world standard in nature. I think this is a process of evolution on both sides. So with the RSPO, we have the opportunity, and I would argue the responsibility, to constantly be asking ourselves, how can we make global standards for the industry better? When we look at sustainability, you are always finding new issues and new dimensions to address. So today we talk a lot about carbon and CO2 emissions, mm. but we also talk increasingly about standards around labor rights, um, about gender issues, inclusion, safety and equity. So our role, I would argue, is to be constantly asking ourselves, where can the industry do better? And when 20% of the global industry establishes and follows standards that are actually at the cutting edge, it's a great reference point and resource for national policymakers to say, all right, if we can't get there today, at least we know that's possible and we can push our national industry in that direction. Help me understand the tangible differences, right? Mm. And let's just focus about in Malaysia, the yeah. distinctions that are RSPO certified and local standards. Like what makes the big difference there? Um, 
there's a lot of detail that I'm not going to go into, mm. but essentially in our standards, we cover the same major categories. So we cover environmental compliance, we cover climate change issues, we cover labor and social standards, we cover standards around how you deal with local communities, land rights, etc. In many of the specifics within those, our standards require sometimes a greater level of detail and a higher level of demonstrating compliance. So the the rigor of how you demonstrate that sometimes can be more onerous. And so granularity is key in absolutely. terms of the insights here and also yeah. the stringent discipline of compliance, right? Which really comes down to the cost of it, isn't it? That yeah. is the biggest challenge here. And, and building the case why someone should be RSPO certified in view that this cost of compliance or this cost of being granular in the reporting, right, yeah. will need to translate into some premium, isn't it? Yeah. How does that work out? How does the business case, you know, translate here with RSPO? Well, the simple and comfortable answer for me is it's demand and supply. Because we're a voluntary standard, any grower has to him or herself make the decision to say, is it worth the effort for me to become compliant with RSPO? Because my buyers are willing to pay a premium for this or my buyers, the people I want to sell to, are requiring this. So again, a difference between a voluntary standard and a mandatory one is, to some extent, we have the ability to use demand and supply as an attenuator of whether we're going too far or not. Mm. And the fact that we not only have 20% of the market now certified, but we have a significant pipeline of other plantations in the process shows that there is sufficient demand for this. We also have markets around the world, brands and others who are willing to pay a premium for certified sustainable palm oil. And increasingly, you're seeing many markets in the world and many consumer sectors where it's necessary because there's such a strong focus on demonstrating brand value around sustainability. So the market for best-in-the-class certified sustainable palm oil is definitely out there. Mm. This is the central challenge, right? This market is not a global cohesive market. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I can see the case when you talk about Europe or the Western countries, but I hear many people say, look, I'm not going to adopt these standards. I'm going to just shift my, my, my demand mark to markets which actually have these lower standards like China, for instance, right? Mm. That seems to be the narrative that's been coming out. Yeah. Look, I can't comply with Europe. Let me just focus on Asia. That is the likely scenario taking place, isn't it? Yes, but I think if you look carefully at what's happening in markets like China and India and even in Malaysia and Indonesia, the expectation that our production will become more sustainable over time that we become more rigorous in how we demonstrate our compliance with these standards, that expectation is growing as well. So if I can be perfectly blunt, you probably have a bit more time to comply with these requirements if you sell to markets that are more price sensitive. But if you talk to the people in those markets, the conversations are the same. I travel to China and India regularly, and I hear from buyers there as well, particularly the brands that they are becoming increasingly concerned about being seen to source sustainably. So we have large consumer goods companies in China that are now requiring RSP certification for their products as well. So it's coming. It's a matter of time then. It's a matter of time. And so it's, it's time that many of the producers who have not fully aligned on these standards, it's time they have to align. But they better be using that time wisely. Mm. What what do you think is the biggest challenge then? And, and it comes back again to the whole cost and premium side, mm. right? Like... Again, when you talk to someone to join RSPO, right, how do you sell the case to them that actually it helps you access more markets, you can charge more? What is the business case that you communicate to a, a prospective member to mm. join RSPO? 
I start by essentially saying in slightly longer words, <laughs> look at the world around you. So forget about compliance only with demands from your buyers. If you look at where regulators are going, if you look at where stock market disclosure requirements are going, if you look at where your banks and financial institutions are going, if you look at where your brands and your consumers are going, everybody's pointing in the same direction. Maybe at different speeds, maybe on different specific issues, but there isn't a single part of your ecosystem as a company that's not telling you you need to become more sustainable over time. The RSPO standard, the RSPO partnership is a crystallization of those expectations. So even if you feel you're not ready yet to comply with all the rigor of our standards, you definitely need to be looking at that. You definitely need to be having that conversation. And we're happy to work with you to help you figure out how to get there over time. All right, we're going to take a break, take a quick break. And on the Breakfast Grill, I speak to Joseph De Cruz, CEO of RSPO Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. After the break, we, ex we ask him how does he plan to expand his membership to smallholders. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Welcome back. On The Grill with me is Joseph De Cruz, CEO of Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or more well-known as RSPO, as we had an earlier conversation about whether global standards for palm oil complement or compete with national standards. Now, Joseph, the conversation has so far talked a bit about how do we get these standards working, but now just talk about the users of mm. these standards, these smallholders, right? Because you have about 5,600 accredited members, and the perception always is that RSPO is a big boys club, mm. that it's just dominated by multinationals. Is that a fair allegation? I don't think so. For two reasons. First of all, of those 5,600 members, we have a very important caucus. There are people like environmental and social NGOs. We have zoos, we have financial institutions, people who are invested in the sustainability of the industry, but who are not part of that supply chain. We also have a lot of small retail brands, um, tiny companies in the UK and the US and elsewhere that source our products for their soaps and their shampoos and others. But importantly, in that 5,600, we have an important constituency of smallholders. We actually have over 100,000 smallholders who are RSPO members, but they are formed into cooperatives. And so we count mm. 5,600 members, we count one cooperative as a member of RSPO, but within that, thousands and thousands of smallholders who are actively following our standards and our certification and demonstrating that they can also produce palm oil according to the most rigorous standards in the world. Mm. So 20% of production is RSPO, right? Help us focus. What does this mean in Malaysia, actually? Because the cooperatives, when I hear that number, that means that still a huge chunk of smallholders are not participating in RSPO still, right? Not yet, though we have a lot of demand and we are seeing more and more smallholder groups mm. in Malaysia and also in Indonesia, which has more than 2 million smallholders. We're seeing more and more of these groups coming to us wanting to participate. The way it works for us is because of scale and also because of mutual support, we encourage smallholders to federate into a cooperative or some other form of group and to use that group as a vehicle to become certified. And then we work through those cooperatives or other mechanisms to support them in doing so. And we actually direct quite a bit of our resources into things like our smallholder support fund and other activities to support smallholders specifically to become certified. Mm. And this intention to federate, consolidate is to create that economies of scale so that you actually can bring down that cost of certification. Because I think one of the biggest Absolutely. concerns is that sometimes the certification process can be very high, uh, up to $215 per sector. And even when you look at the numbers, the range is quite big from 87 to $200, right? What drives that high cost of certification? Our certification schemes are independently 
conducted by third parties. Mm. So RSPO itself doesn't send auditors out to undertake the certification. This is done by global certification bodies that also certify food and safety standards, safety standards in airlines and others. So the process itself definitely has a cost involved. Third-party auditors actually fly out physically to these plantations, which are often in quite remote areas, and conduct on-the-ground verification audit checks that go on in some cases for a number of days. With smallholders, the only way that's feasible is basically to federate into a group and have those groups collectively audited on a sample basis. Mm. Doing that spreads the cost out across the entire group, but also ensures that when the group receives the benefits of RSPO certification, through the premiums and the credits that they actually accrue, those benefits are also shared equally, not just amongst the smallholders themselves, but in many cases also with the broader community within which they work. So it's a model actually that provides quite a lot of important benefit to smallholders and their communities from being part of the RSPO system. Hence the question is, you know, the cost-benefit analysis mm. for every $1, you know, invested in certification, what is the equivalent benefit there, right? What is the ROI for that? Has yeah. that been articulated to build a case? So, um, first point of context on this one, for anyone who's ever worked with a small farmer, you know that a small farmer looks at ROI on a, forgive the term, no BS basis. They're not going to do this out of the goodness of their heart because they don't have the capacity to do so. Mm. Every time we have a smallholder group that comes and talks... It's not to CSR. Oh, God, no. I mean, a small farmer has no time for CSR. Yeah. They're paying bills. They're making sure that their families are taken care of. They're making sure the kids get education. So when a smallholder group makes the decision to federate, to join the RSPO, to go through the process of getting certified, to go through all the training that requires, the documentation, etc., they are doing it because they know that the benefit to them is significant. And that benefit is not just financial. Financial benefits are clear because that allows these smallholders to sell their products at a premium. That allows these smallholders to sell to the best but buyers But is it minimum one-to-one, one, though, that cost to benefit financially? Financially, it's definitely more than one-to-one one because if it's one-to-one, one, most of these smallholders... Approximately how much? Um, I can't quote you a figure for two reasons. One, um, it varies a lot across different markets. And two, we stay out of the, the business of trying to sell sustainability purely as a profit-making mm. um, approach. But the benefit to smallholders is not just financial. When you talk to the smallholders we work with, many of them, especially the ones who've been members of RSPO for a long time, talk a lot more about the benefits they've gained in terms of understanding best-in-class management practices. I spent a bit of time uh, late last year in Surat Thani in southern Thailand, where we have smallholder groups that have been RSPO certified for more than 10 years. And when you talk to them directly, they said, over time, we realize the real benefit to us is we've learned how to manage our farms more effectively, reduce import co input costs, increase our productivity, and that has actually had a financial benefit beyond just the credits or the, the uh, revenues we accrue from RSPO. And there's also that social solidarity dimension. The smallholder cooperatives get revenues from us through premiums and, and others. During COVID, we had smallholder groups in Indonesia who were pooling that money and using it to support families that were impacted by COVID. You have groups in Indonesia, well-documented, who use it for community purposes like uh, buying ambulances, supporting schools, helping build ancillary livelihood activities for mm -hmm. widows and others. So the social impact of this is far more than just the financial. So the reinvestment part. I, yeah. I wonder whether, you know, you mentioned about this whole premium that comes through. Mm. Are you? Do you see yourself also playing that role of connecting the plantations, the smallholders with the bigger multinationals, with the customers, right? Yes. Is RSPO's role evolving from just not only setting standards, but being also that agent that facilitated that bridge between mm. the palm oil plantation companies 
and the consumers in the end of it. RSPO fundamentally was set up as being a bridge. We are a multi-stakeholder organization. At our founding in the year 2000, the core group that came together included environmental NGOs, WWF, included supermarkets in Europe, as well as growers. And the bridge point that you mentioned just now is critical because we already see in our system that many of the top brands in the world who want to demonstrate not only that they're sourcing sustainably, but that they are supporting sustainability on the ground, work to the RSPO system to connect directly with these smallholder groups, not just to buy from them, but to actually support them with technical assistance in training and others. We have examples of that here in Malaysia. We have examples in Indonesia. And in fact, later this month, when we have our annual roundtable meeting, which is in Jakarta on the 20th and 21st, we're bringing together large numbers of our smallholders together with many of these leading global brands to talk further about how they can strengthen that level of support. It's incredibly valuable for these brands to be able to show the human face of the palm oil that they source mm. because it helps then tell the story to consumers about the benefits that palm production actually produce, provides for communities on the ground. I mean, look, this sounds like utopia, right? You've got these smallholders, they all kind of band together, you set standards, you connect them to the market. Mm. But the biggest spanner in all this work is government, isn't it? Government sometimes sets all these unrealistic standards or even on our side in Malaysia, sometimes they also shoot themselves in the foot by making difficult claims, I think, about where they are in terms of meeting standards. Sometimes do you find government more an irritant than a facilitator? I think... First of all, when you talk about government, you're talking about a huge span from governments in consumer countries to governments in producer countries. Um, we work very closely with governments in all our different regions because we see the immense power and influence of government regulation. A big part of what we do as a membership organization is to try to bring to these policy conversations a sense of the reality on the ground. But that reality filtered through our purpose, which is to actually make this industry more sustainable. You talked about regulations. And yes, we have many examples right now of regulations being brought in in different regions or countries. They're multi-layered, bureaucratic, like in the EU, right? At Absolutely. the national and also at the continental level. Yep. They are very complex. And sometimes when regulations are put in place for particular supply chains, the risk and the challenge is that there are unintended consequences. So you talked about the EU and, and something we've talked about quite a lot over the last year is the new deforestation regulation the EU's brought in, which intends to ensure that the EU no longer sources products that are associated with deforestation. It's a worthwhile ambition and one that we support. The problem is, depending on how you structure the regulation, there's a real risk that you will actually exclude smallholders who are producing sustainably but lack the capacity to provide the traceability and the documentation that is now required to enter the European market. While the intent is aligned, the way in which you structure those regulations could have negative unintended consequences, especially for people at the margins of the supply chain like smallholders. That's the kind of issue that we're spending a lot of time trying to address. I know. I mean, I think you seem to get caught, you know, between, you know, different governments who have issues with this regulation. I mean, quote our own prime minister, right, asking and, and stating this, quote, the government has taken very aggressive and responsible measures and the EU has to show some sort of appreciation. I wonder when you look at this and think about this, right, this tension, you know, mm. that takes place, you know, at the G2G level, right, yeah. doesn't help you also advance the cause, right? Because you talk to MNCs, MNCs yeah. are practical, they are willing to take kind of the relevant steps to drive. You want to get the smallholders on board. Yeah. You have the tension of trying to elevate the standards met by your MNCs. At the same time, trying to bring those and the smallholders up to those standards, it's a fine balance there. So you answered your own question earlier, it's not utopia. It's really tough work sometimes. 
But the value and the benefit of it is if those forces are aligned, you can not only deal with a lot of the global environmental challenges we face, mm. you can actually make a lot of lives on the ground better. And that's the real impetus for a lot of our work in RSPO. Our fundamental approach as an industry-led organization, as a market-led organization, is to demonstrate that by keeping the trade flowing, holding the trade to higher standards, you can actually make a positive impact in the world. And any regulatory approaches, any political stances that limit or inhibit the trade, to us is actually counterproductive. The best way in which you make lives better on the ground is to ensure that you can continue to improve the quality of the product, the quality of the lives of the people producing it, and demonstrate to buyers that they should support that idea. Food for thought. Joseph, thank you for joining us this morning on The Breakfast Grill. Joseph De Cruz, CEO of Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or more well-known as RSPO. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.